But let's go before the Lord in prayer together this morning. Father, as we turn to your word, we know that your word is effective. It doesn't return void. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. That it is the very breath of God that you've written, you've inspired the writers by your spirit to write and to say exactly what you would have them. And not only is your word effective, but you tell us in your word that prayer is effective. Father, that the prayer of a righteous one can affect much. And so, Father, we know that it's not necessarily the prayer or the prayer, it's the one who hears our prayers. And so we come to you knowing that you listen, you hear our prayers, you tell us to cast our anxieties on you, for you care for us. So, Father, as weak, as sinful, as those who need, as those who might even be needy, Father, we come to you because you care for us, and you are a good Father who does not seek from doing good. You seek to give good gifts. Father, you are holy. You are heavenly. You are perfect. Ultimately, you've given us good things in Christ, and we thank you for that. So, Father, as we come to you, knowing that you are the one who has the power and authority to do all things, we bring these prayer requests to you. Father, first and foremost, we bring praise. Father, for what you have done to us, namely by redeeming us in Christ. You have brought peace to us through Christ. Father, you also have blessed us in immeasurable ways. You've namely blessed our church with children. Four children in the last little while. And Father, we rejoice. We praise you for what you are doing by giving life. The psalmist says that children are a blessing from the Lord. For a father, they're like arrows. So, Father, we are so grateful for what you have done. Father, we pray that not only would you provide physical children to our midst, but that you would provide spiritual children. Father, that you would bring those from the surrounding neighborhoods, the surrounding cities, and would cause them to worship in spirit and in truth that you would redeem them, that they would see their need for a Savior, that they would look to Christ and turn from their sin and walk and join with us at FBC Eastwood. Father, we pray for Richard. We pray for his wife, as they're fighting these symptoms of COVID. Father, we pray that you would give wisdom and discernment to their doctors and those who are caring for them. Father, that you would allow the medicine and the treatment that they're receiving to be effective. Father, we know that you are the great physician, so we ask that even above those things, that you would work miraculously to heal them. And Father, in light of them not being at the church, we ask that you would guard South Jefferson. Father, that you would cause them to be unified. And Father, that you would safely bring back Richard to their midst to serve and to shepherd them. And Father, we think of Shannel and Ruth. 
and the work that they're doing in Dubai. Father, we pray that you would give them opportunities, even in the midst of a somewhat hostile environment. Father, that those who hear of Christ would see him as the great prophet, the one whom God has sent, that God dwelt among men, that God became a man in Jesus and would ultimately trust in him for their salvation and eternal life. Father, we pray for Shannon and Ruth and their daughter. Father, we ask that you would continue to look after them, keep them safe and healthy. Father, we pray for their church and their pastor, Nissen, that he would continue to preach the gospel, and that it would go out and would be fruitful. Father, we pray for our own church. Father, that you would continue to, by your word and by your spirit, raise up disciples who know your word, who love Jesus and want to tell others about him. So, Father, as we open up your word, we pray to that end that your spirit would work by your word in the lives of those who hear. So, Father, be with me, your preacher. Give me the words to speak. And, Father, if I were to say anything in error, I I pray that it would be quickly forgotten. Father, ultimately, as we look to Jesus... Father, that you would convict us of sin just as we've read earlier. Father, that we would see sin for what it is. It's grave darkness. But through what Christ has done, a great light has shone. Father, that we would walk as those in the light. So, Father, be with us now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. And before I ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word, I want to ask you a question. And this is not a rhetorical question. So this might come, it might come as a surprise. So I legitimately want a response. What do you think about when you think about Christmas? What do you think about when you think about Christmas? I'm hearing some snickers, and so now I'm really intrigued. Family? Joy? What? A baby? (laughs) Yeah? There you go. Nail on the head. We don't even need to keep going, but we're going to keep going. Food? Did we say food? Inexhaustible love, Jesus' birth, food. That's kind of what I thought, you know. The Grinch, it's a wonderful life. Elf, this, Christmas lights, Christmas trees. I even wore my Christmas tree tie just for you all. Not really, I just like it. But oftentimes those are the things that get our attention. Right? We've, we've had some awesome responses, and I love all of the responses. I love Christmas season. I love it. I love the movies. I love the food. I love the friends. I love the family. I love everything about it. But so often when we think about Christmas, we can sometimes subtract the true meaning of what Christmas is about 
and just go along our way. We get so caught up in the gift-giving and gift-exchanging that we get so anxious, get so frustrated at the store trying to buy stuff in the midst of COVID even. And that's just me. All of those things can be frustrating, and so we must recenter and refocus ourselves on what this season truly is about. And it's about the birth of Jesus. So as we get into Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we're going to be focusing on the incarnation, this event where God became man. Never had this happened, and never will this happen again. Jesus now sits bodily at the right hand of God the Father, and he will return bodily. He will never again have to be incarnated because he already is. As one of my favorite professors at Southern, Jesus is God the Son incarnate. So if you would stand with me as we read from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. May the Lord receive honor and glory from the reading of his word. You may be seated. So this popular Christmas text, this promise of Jesus' birth. We're going to focus primarily in three areas of what does the incarnation mean for me? What does the incarnation mean for me? So a quick breakdown of how this text flows. In verses 1 through 2, we see that gloom is turned to joy as darkness turns to light. In verses 3 through 5, we see that the dominion of darkness is defeated by the victory of the dominion of the sun. In verses 6 through 7, we see that the dominion of the human sun is also God. 
So what I want us to see in this text is three vital results of the incarnation. That without the incarnation, these three truths would not be realities. That without the incarnation, these two or these three statements would actually be untruths. They would be lies. But because God became man, they are true. So Isaiah chapter 9. It's a prophecy of, just as I mentioned, the incarnation. Where God dwells among men. This was hoped for for so many centuries. So many decades of those who trusted in God. But, he doesn't just dwell with men. He dwells as a man. Moses in Deuteronomy 18 verse 15 says that this prophet, this coming prophet will come from among you, from your brothers. In Jesus, God becomes a man. Born of the Virgin Mary. In this way, in his humanity, Jesus is precisely like us. Except for one way. Hebrews 4 and 5 reminds us of Christ's humanity. He was tempted, the writer says, in every way. Yet what? He was without sin. So he was exactly like us. Except he didn't sin. He remained to be 100% God and 100% man. As Paul says in Colossians 2, that God became man. So in Jesus, the full deity of God was pleased to dwell in a mortal body. As we sang these hymns this morning, as we heard God's word spoke, as we prayed and continued in worship, I'm looking around the room and there are two little girls and two little boys. And it's hard to not think about the birth of a son when we're talking about Advent and there are two of them right here. But let me tell you something that we already know. That hope and redemption doesn't come from Daniel or William. The incarnation of Jesus is God becoming man, not just another child being born. So God becomes a man. What hope this must have been. Not only did God come, But he didn't come as this warrior. He didn't come as this spiritual being, this spiritual sense that God is spirit. But he came like us. As Paul in Philippians says, in Philippians, Paul in Philippians 2 says that Christ humbled himself. He didn't consider being God something to be grabbed, but rather he humbled himself. By taking on flesh. But ultimately, he doesn't just take on flesh because we can't just look at the advent and stop. The coming of Christ is only significant because of who he is and what he does. 
The Advent manger with a baby points us to the cross of Calvary with a slain Savior. This is God in the flesh. So three things that the incarnation means for you. First, it means that light defeats darkness. Light defeats darkness. Verses 1 and 2. What is this darkness? There's anguish. There's gloom. Isaiah is writing with vivid imagery that there's something awful going on here. All we need to do is just go a few chapters ahead. Look at what's going on in the people of God. In Isaiah chapter 6, what do we see? We see Isaiah taken to the throne room. And he sees God sitting on the throne. But even before that, the prophet postmarks where he is. In the year that King Uzziah died, their, their nation is going through incredible turmoil. That there's gloom and there's anguish. There is this incoming exile. The Babylonians are coming. It's as if this cloud of gloom and anguish lays over the people of Zebulun and Naphtali. These are tribes, two of the twelve tribes of Israel. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of nations. This same Place This same region that sits in darkness and gloom and anguish will see a great light. Now, this is not the light that we flip on when we come home and it's dark. Because this darkness does not just mean, oh, yeah, the sun's down. The darkness that they're talking about in Isaiah is that the sun is not here. S O. And that through this sun, in verse 6, everything else in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, hinges on this point. That the light that is shown in this area of darkness, that those who have seen a great light, they're talking about this sun. You may think, that's a pretty big jump. Let's support that, Pastor. Well, let's look at where did Jesus do the majority of his ministry? Capernaum of Galilee. His first miracle is there in Cana of Galilee. There continues to be this pushing back of this kingdom of darkness where Jesus heals the blind. He heals the sick. He gives life to the dead. This is the great light that has shone on these nations. I believe it's Matthew 4 where this text is quoted as a fulfillment of Jesus coming. That Jesus' ministry is actually in the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. And what does it do? Verse 2, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So they actively see it. 
I think this goes somewhat to where John talks about that uh, he came to his own, John chapter 1, and his own did not receive him, but to those who did receive him. There are those who see the light of Jesus. They experience the joy of Jesus and they walk with him. They submit themselves to him. And they, as Paul says, seek to live a life in the light and to cease walking in the darkness. But some don't. Some don't. But here in the second part of verse 2, those who dwelt the same spot, the same area, those who dwelt among them, they may not have seen the light, they may not have experienced this redemptive work, but the light has shone on them just as it did those others. As Paul says, we're without excuse. Those who do not trust in the redemptive work of Christ are without excuse because God's goodness continues to show itself through creation and ultimately through the work of Christ. So the incarnation means light defeats darkness, but this darkness is not just a a darkness of we need a, a redeemer. We need a redeemer from what? They need a redeemer from themselves. All throughout Scripture's storyline, we see redeemers sent to do this work. Immediately before this section, God sends the prophets. But the people don't listen to the prophets. So God sends 500 years of silence leading up to the birth of Christ. Before the prophets, we have the kings. The kingdom that God has installed and has allowed these kings to represent him, to lead his people. But what do we see all throughout the chronicles and kings of the Old Testament? They're horrible. The kings of the nation of God are just as, if not worse, than the pagan kings. They were designed to be those who would lead righteously, to lead with peace. Before the kings, there were judges. But what do we see in the book of Judges? That all walked. They all did what was right in their own eyes. No one sought after God. Before that, we have the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only problem with each and every one of them is they're just as sinful as we are. Even all the way back to creation. As God makes a good and perfect garden where man and woman dwell among him. Walking together. They break the one rule that he sets up for them. And fall into sin. And darkness continues to reign. It seems as though darkness continues to pervade and to expand where God's kingdom was was designed to do very, the very same thing. Where God had given Adam and Eve this creation mandate to multiply and to expand in their sin, sin multiplies and expands. This darkness is a darkness of sin and light must come. And God knows that only He Himself can do this. So that is exactly what he does. He sends 
the second person of the Trinity. He sends his son. So the coming of Christ, the one prophesied in our passage today, is the breaking of the darkness by the true light. Where all the preceding people had been intended to be the light, they had done so imperfectly. But one would soon come who would perfectly rule, reign, obey, and endure all that the Father had instructed. What a glorious day. Now, I think it would be easy for us to make connections to darkness and gloom and anguish. It could even be in the same day. Something happens. We get upset and our emotions start to get the best of us. What ought we to do in those times of darkness? There's an author by the name of John Piper who writes a book, I believe, by the title, When the Darkness Will Not Lift. You are just going through anxiety or depression or these things that continue to ravage us. What do we do? We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus and the work that he has done on our behalf. So if you find yourself in that situation, if you find yourself in that scenario thinking, man, we're we're like Naphtali and Zebulon, we are in anguish and gloom. But look to Jesus because this promised child will make it so that gloom is no more. There will be no gloom when the sun arrives. He brings light and defeats the darkness. Second thing the incarnation means. The incarnation means that there's a surprising defeat. Continuing this theme of light and darkness, there's a defeat that's coming. We've just come off of a study in Zechariah where we've just come off of the end of the end. Where Jesus, this warrior king, comes back at the end of all time and he sets all things new. He finally and forever rids the earth of those who do not worship him. Well, so too here we see a surprising defeat. Verses 3 through 5 talks about those who have multiplied, they continue in joy as with joy at the harvest. This would have been an amazing and incredible time for the people of God. That harvest is coming, and it means an abundance for not only their nation, but also for them. This is the victory that comes through this promised child. In verses 4 and 5, remind us of this defeat of a battle at Midian. Verse 4, you have broken as on the day of Midian. What are... What happened here? Judges chapter 6 and 7. Gideon's army. Gideon's men. His army of over 30,000 men. And what does God tell him? We got to cut it down, man. There's too many folks. We don't have this in Judges, but if I'm anything like Gideon, which who knows, I may not be, I'd have to be like, No, 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 no. You don't understand how warfare works? Let me tell you, we need more troops? Never less than for something like this? 
What does God do? By unusual means, he cuts this 30 plus thousand troop down to how many? 300. What's he trying to do with Gideon? He's trying to show him it doesn't matter how many numbers you have. It doesn't matter how many men fight for you. If God doesn't fight for you, you could have billions of people fighting for you, but it won't matter. So God reminds Gideon that those other 30 plus thousand people, all you need is 300. And really, all you need is me. So on that day, this rejoicing will be like that. This conquest that is done only by the hand of God. The victory doesn't come from the people of God. It comes from God himself. They may have wanted another king like Saul who stood above the rest of the nation, who looked great, who spoke well. But really what they needed was this child. For he would be the king that they needed. It's a surprising defeat. It's a surprising defeat. Third thing that incarnation means is it means the eternal dominion of the Son. The eternal dominion of the Son. Verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. Let's stop right there. This surprising defeat, this surprising victory doesn't come by Gideon's 30,000. It doesn't come even by Israel. Who does it come by? It comes by a baby? Excuse me, what? So there's a reminder that this baby is completely unlike every other baby. While he is human, just like all of the others, he is God. That in the incarnation, God, the Word, became flesh and dwelt among us. We see these four kind of dual aspects of humanity and deity. In his name, wonderful counselor. We could go to any litany of counselors. You can get financial counseling. You can get uh, home buying counseling. You can get fill in the blank. There's, there's a counselor for that. Well, I'm a football coach. You need a counselor, man. Everybody's a coach or a counselor. But Jesus is not just a counselor. He is a wonderful counselor. This reminder that he is different. He is other. Secondly, we see that he is mighty. He who is mighty. This again calls to mind Gideon's mighty men. He will experience victory, but he won't experience victory like they've seen before because he is God. So he is a wonderful counselor, and he is a mighty God. To continue in this amazing reality of this son, this baby being born, where humanity and deity 
become one. It continues that he is everlasting. And he's an everlasting father. That the son will be a father. Imagine some of the fatherly qualities that we see throughout Jesus' ministry in his care and walking through with his disciples. His care in walking with us. We see that upon Jesus' crucifixion that they'll strike the shepherd and the sheep will flee. But what does a good shepherd do? The good shepherd lays down his life for his people. And Jesus says, he lay, I lay down my life to take it up again. Only God can do that. Only an everlasting Father can do that. Thirdly, he's the prince of peace. Remember, Isaiah 6, King Uzziah is dead. There is no one to sit on the throne, but the reminder in Isaiah 6 is that God is on the throne. The Lord is on the throne. And he will bring peace. He is the prince of peace. He won't rule like these other rulers will. He won't rule like Saul, who will have to fiddle with the, uh, the Philistines. He won't have to do all of these things because he will reign. And he reigns in peace. In the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. It's eternal. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Sandlot. And in the Sandlot, they repeat the refrain as they talk about the dog spending all of its life in the junkyard. And if you've seen the Sandlot, you know that Squints just repeats over and over again, forever. How long is his reign? Forever. No, like really, it's eternal. But like, when's he going to get voted out? When's somebody else going to come in and fill it? No. There's no incumbent. There's no vote. As the hymn says, he shall reign forever and ever. On this throne of David, taking us back to the promise of 2 Samuel 7. This kingdom is established And it will be upheld. But it will be upheld with justice and righteousness from this time and forever. And again, we're reminded that it's the Lord who will do this. It is God himself who will do this. Because we might sit and think, well, how how is the kingdom going to go on forever? We've never seen a kingdom like that. Isaiah comforts us. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So who's going to send the son? God's going to send the son. Who's going to accomplish the victory? God's going to accomplish the victory. And who's going to secure the kingdom? God's going to accomplish the kingdom. So church, you may be feeling like we have gloom and anguish that this COVID cloud is over us and it will never end. You know who made COVID? You know who reigns over COVID? The same God who sent his son. Y'all are getting off into uh, some crazy territory, I can tell. I heard a story about who created COVID. God reigns and rules over all of these things. So when we experience this anguish, this agony, this gloom, we look to Jesus. 
for we have seen a great light. So quick applications. That this day, while we're celebrating Christmas, while we're in the Advent season, it may seem dark, but we, church, be reminded, we have seen the light. In Jesus, as the hymn says, joy to the world, the Lord is come. So there is no need for gloom, for a Savior has come. He is God the Son incarnate. He has humbled himself, taking on flesh, and has ultimately humbled himself by enduring the cross, securing the redemption of those who believe. And secondly, I want to read a quote that is powerful. This is by a pastor in Nashville by the name of Ray Ortland. And here's what he says as a commentary on Isaiah chapter 9. You may be facing a lot of things. You may be facing budget discussions in your home of this red's not a good thing, is it? We need this job. We need provision. We need all of these things. Here's what Ortland says. God's answer to everything that has ever or will ever terrorize us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to those enemies of the Israelites and all of the other big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. Think about that. The kingdom of God is like sending a baby who is king. What an incredible Truth. Ortland continues that God's answer to the bully swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. What a good truth that God's answer is Jesus. God the Son incarnate, who would come, live a perfect life die the death that we deserve on the cross. Not stay dead. Rise again and will come again. The incarnation means light defeats darkness. The incarnation means that there's a surprising defeat. And the incarnation means the eternal dominion of the Son. So continue to look to Jesus, not just in Christmas, not just in Advent, but at all times. Look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your word we can see Jesus. Father, that you have sent him. You loved the world in such a way that you sent Jesus. Father, that those who have walked in darkness see a great light in Jesus. That Jesus is the one who turns gloom into joy. Father, that he's humbled himself, not coming as a king on a chariot, but coming as a baby in a manger 
born of a virgin. Father, we thank you for this Jesus. We thank you for the peace that we can have through him. Father, I pray for any who might be experiencing anguish, might be experiencing gloom. Father, that they would look to Christ, see what he has done, and experience the peace that surpasses all understanding. Father, we thank you for this season. We thank you that we're able to celebrate this together. And Father, may we continue to walk in this way, looking to Jesus, not just in Christmas, but for all of our lives. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.